Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. The year, 1962. Everybody live from our homes because we are still in quarantine. This is Gilda Films Podcast, which picture was best? And we are covering the year 1962, which was a year that Lawrence of Arabia swept the Oscars. So uh, alongside here in the house, we have a bunch of sand, since it is a very sandy movie. I don't know, I try to make a pun about sand that clearly didn't work in my head very well. But hello, <laughs> is I Christian? Uh, and welcome to my co-host, Brett. Hello, Brett. Hello. Welcome back. And with us, it has been a while, but welcome back to KB. Hello. Hello, hello. What has been happening with you? Uh, a lot of staying in the house. Uh, a lot of movie watching, I'll have to say, um, for various reasons, but just to keep myself from going crazy, mostly. Yep, I feel that completely. KB, did you have something you wanted to talk about? Um, plug anything while we're here on you? Oh, well, I also have a podcast. It's called The Center Seat. Uh, you can look us up on Twitter at Center Seat Pod. And uh, anytime we drop a new episode, you'll be able to get the notification there and listen in. Let us know what you think. Perfect. Yeah. So yeah, KB's been busy since the last time he was able to join us, getting that all squared away and set up, and glad to have him back joining us for the year 1962. And so um, we got five films to cover today, nominated from that year, um, pretty good bunch of films. And so 1962, pretty good year for movies, I would say. Um, and so we'll cover five today, and just like always, we will cover a few more in our next episode. But just a little bit on the Oscars from that year. They were held on April 8th, 1963. Best Picture, big, really big film that year was Lawrence of Arabia. Um, director David Lean also won an Oscar for Best Director. Best Actress went to Anne Bancroft for The Miracle Worker. Best Actor went to Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird. Best Supporting Actress to Patty Duke for The Miracle Worker as well. And then Best Supporting Actor to Ed Begley for Sweet Bird of Youth. So... Nice group of films there. Lawrence of Arabia was the big winner of the night. It took home the most wins with seven out of a total of 10 nominations, which it also led. Um, this year was hosted by Frank Sinatra, who actually has some interesting things to say. Christian, you sent me something before this where he kind of spoke his mind about some things going on, which is kind of interesting. And so check that out. Look it up on YouTube. It's kind of interesting. Um, another cool thing from this year, cool, weird way to put it, I guess, but... This was the kind of the culminating events of the feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Um, Betty Davis was nominated for a film that we will discuss in our next episode. And of course, Joan Crawford. Christian, why don't you tell this story? Let's, let's. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Betty Davis and Joan Crawford were in the film. What, whatever happened to baby Jane. We'll talk about that on the next one. 
Um, Betty was nominated for Best Actress. Joan was not nominated, although she should have been nominated for supporting, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so alongside of Betty was Catherine Hepburn and Bancroft, who would go on to win, uh, Geraldine Page, uh, other people. Anyway, so Joan Crawford supposedly, according to Betty Davis, pressured Academy voters not to vote for her and to vote for somebody else. Because of course there was like this feud that they had going on, which may or may not have been like a real thing. There's a whole TV show about it. I highly recommend that. I don't really know if that's totally accurate or not. But then Joan also said this, whichever one of you wins, I will gladly accept the award on your behalf. Because back then, not a lot of actors showed up to this thing. Um, Anne Bancroft, who did win, was on Broadway at the time. And sure enough, Joan goes on stage. She reads a little something much to Betty's chagrin, and then walks off. And then after the show is over, as I showed Brett earlier, there are pictures of her standing with the other three acting winners, which is very awkward. Because <laughs> this isn't your moment, Joan, but she made it her moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yes, so there was a feud there, and because of that, they were going to star in a follow-up movie, and Betty sort of had Joan fired from that. So. Revenge. Revenge. Yeah. The ultimate feud, and I love it, and it's great, and that's the juiciest bit of drama from these Oscars. <laughs> and now there's a TV miniseries about it that came out a few years ago, so I haven't yeah. seen it, so I don't know if it's any good, but... It's really good. It is. Very nice. Like, they show the whole process of Joan, like, talking to other voters, and like, you know, she's won before, she's won twice. <laughs> Give it to somebody new. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, that was kind of the juiciest bit of information from this year's Oscars. Other than that, I think a lot of it probably went the way people expected it to. Um, and so we'll look at why that is and jump right into some of these movies. And so our first one on deck here is a war film centered on World War II. It is The Longest Day. And I was telling Christian earlier today, it's kind of cool that we're recording this today because I just, I didn't realize this wasn't intentional, but today is May 8th, um, which means it is the 75th anniversary of VE Day or Victory in Europe Day. So not the same as what this film is covering, but kind of an interesting coincidence. And so this film is basically a interesting retrospect retrospective of the D-Day invasion from all different sides. You know, it looks at the German side of things and the US and their plan to invade France um, on that day in World War II, um, June 6, 1944. And so it's not like a typical um, emotional character-driven war film. It's not something along the lines of like Saving Private Ryan or something like that. It's actually more of like a docudrama, um, black and white kind of technical film put together that shows how this day came about. Um, it is a long film. It's about three hours long. And so kind of going along with the title, it is the longest day. Um, but it is really interesting to see them kind of do this in a way that seems pretty well researched, um, to show what both sides were looking at and to show how the U S was trying to basically catch Germany off guard doing this, um, and how they were having to battle the weather and doing this and the amphibious attacks. And really looked like a really challenging film to make, um, to kind of make this all work together and covering it from all sides like this. But I really enjoyed it by that aspect. I'm a big 
history buff and particularly a big World War II history buff. So this was kind of right up my alley. I don't know if you're not into that. It's, I don't know how it would work for someone that really has no interest. It's pretty technical in that aspect, but what do you guys think? So this is my first time seeing this. Um, I've been wanting to see it for a while now and it was fine. I like history too, but I, I think it had to do with the whole three story structure of this, having the Germans, the French and the American slash British troops go through all this. I'm just, I'm really just normally used to American and British troops. So, I mean, that was interesting to see how the um, Axis powers really got through to this, but yeah, I don't know. It did feel long at times. I will say that because you're fleshing this whole damn thing out this longest day. Yeah, it was fine. I don't know. Yeah. I probably would never watch it again. But <laughs> it's fun to see all the big stars, I guess. And of course, they all had to be like the English speaking stars. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah, there are a lot of big stars in this. You know, you've got John Wayne, Henry Fonda, um, Richard Burton shows up in this, Paul Anka, a lot of big names in there. Sean Connery. Paul Anka. Paul Anka. <laughs> I don't know why that's just funny to me. Somebody great just saying Paul Anka. <laughs> Katie, what did you think? He was very popular at the time. I think he also uh, did the music behind it too. Um, yeah, the, the biggest thing about this movie besides the running time is the cast. And what I liked about it is the use of not just having them show up as main characters like John Wayne almost was like made for this part. It's like, you know, Scott doing Patton or something like that. But also having some characters just come in and you're like, ooh, big name face on my screen. And then all of a sudden you don't see him again. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like you said, capturing the, the um, D-Day and the approach to it, you, you see the inspiration for a lot of war movies that followed it. You mentioned Saving Private Ryan and, you know, the beach uh, attack and everything like that. And you see where they got this. The cinematography in this is great, especially for the time, as well as the special effects. So I could see why they went on to win the Academy Awards in both those categories. You know, I, I actually watched a Blu-ray copy and it was really, really clean. And then all of a sudden, you know, they had the rear projection screen moments and it was like, ooh, too clean, too clean. Yeah, yeah. Because you could see where it was rear projection. But if you think about the time and the fact that it was on film, this probably went off really, really well. I have to ask uh, to both of you, because I read this, that it seemed a little off-putting, but did having big name stars in this throw you off? They were a pleasant surprise to me. Um, the movie <laughs> opens up and you don't have like all the opening credits like you did yeah. in the early 60s. So as they showed up on the screen, if you didn't look in or have a program or something like that, having those people just pop up, like all of a sudden Rod Steiger's on the screen, let's say. yeah. And Richard Burton doing, you know, I, I thought he was in another Shakespeare <laughs> Shakespeare performance, the way he was acting, but I guess that's just Richard Burton for you. 
so it didn't take me out of it or anything like that. It was a pleasant surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I liked it. Just, I don't know. It, it makes it feel a little more personal, I think, because like I said, this is not a character driven movie. There's not much pure emotion to it. And like seeing those actors that, you know, show up on screen really like made it seem a little more personal to me. Um, and like KB said, I was glad that it, they still did it in an authentic way. You know, it's not like Henry Fonda shows up and then just completely takes over the rest of the movie. He's there, he serves his part and then he's gone. And so it's not like they like completely readjusted the entire plot of the movie to center around him when he showed up. And so it didn't, it was not putting to me, I don't think in any way. How about you, since you asked that question? I don't know. I, well, I mean, obviously you're gonna have to put some big name stars in this if you wanna make a buck. Yeah. So, and it to me, I'm also thinking of well, actual movie stars and directors went through World War II. So, mm, I mean, John good Wayne, point. John Wayne didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a whole podcast on you must remember this, a whole episode detailing why he didn't. I must say, it's really great, but yeah. Um, but like the likes of Henry Fonda, um, I mean, just throwing anybody in there. Uh, Christopher Lee is in this, and they said like, oh, you don't look like the type who would have gone to war, but he did. He was like a veteran of World War II, so. But no, yeah, I think it's good. It, again, it's interesting to think that most of them are from on the American British side. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that some of them French and German actors were famous in their own rights in their countries, but. And the Germans were probably the most interesting to me because like you said earlier, not normally having that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, normally having the English or the American perspective and also the French operatives to see them and the roles that they played. Like the, there's a scene where the guy uh, sets off some detonators and is like, you know, I've never done this before kind of feeling. <laughs> so it was like really, really nice to see those perspectives. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I really love seeing like the, the French operatives and the spies and the civilians who were just like, when they heard the Americans and the British are coming and they're gonna invade, like just the excitement they felt, like, oh, we might get away from this oppressive Nazi rule. Um, And so like things like that, stuff that's just not always considered that I thought was pretty well captured. But I don't know, there are also some stuff that I like actually learned from watching this, like the, the, the trooper dummies, like the little dolls that they send out, out of the helicopters. Not gonna lie, I had no idea that they did that. And I like looked it up to see if it was accurate. And they're like, yeah, you know, they weren't that pristine and lifelike. But that was something they did as a distraction on D-Day. I'm like, well, that's cool. And so it's a good learning tool tool. I found it interesting that the Germans had no idea where anybody was gonna land for like half of that film until it actually <laughs> happens. And it's like, all right, it was here the whole time. Y'all idiots. Yeah. <laughs> it also speaks more into like their pride because they're like, eh, Normandy, they won't land there. Yeah. And yeah. then they're like, oh, why, <laughs> why would they pick this time? It's so cloudy. It's so rainy. They should have did this in May. <laughs> yeah. That's the best time to do it. <laughs> so <Surprise>. clear. <laughs> Yeah. Um, also, the scene at the end where um, the the quote where the guy says, I wonder who won. It was just a really nice way to kind of like finalize the movie saying like, yeah, like this is a good step, but this was also brutal. 
this was devastating for both sides with the human loss and nice way to kind of tie things up together too. So. Well, to think too, that they had another year or so until the war actually ended. Yeah. So, I mean, they may have won this battle, but did they win the whole thing? Right. But yeah. Really good movie. Um, I say pretty good movie. I like, like you said, Christian, I don't know if it's something I've ever going to watch again. It was a really nice experience to, to watch it and kind of see how they did things. Um, it was definitely not one you'd probably pop on for a Saturday night feature, I imagine. But um, it was actually directed by three individuals. It was actually five at one point. Um, Ken Anakin, Andrew Martin, and Bernard Vicky. Um, they directed different scenes at different locations and whatnot. It did win two Oscars for black and white cinematography and special effects. Had two additional nominations for Best Picture um, and Best Art Direction, black and white. Or, sorry, three additional, and film editing as well. And Chris, like you mentioned, making money. This is the number two domestic box office of the year. Um, you put your almost shut down because of Cleopatra, Cleopatra running way over its budget. And so almost something that didn't happen. But like I said, well-researched. They employed Ally and Axis consultants who participated in D-Day. Something I thought was cool, the most expensive black and white film to make until Schindler's List in 1993. Probably a little bit unsurprising, but still kind of cool. And then Dwight D. Eisenhower was originally supposed to play himself, ended up backing out because of inaccuracies. Um, and I saw that they also like couldn't de-age him properly, um, which is kind of interesting. Can you but... imagine that now? Like, hey, let's de-age it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Dwight. Um, John Wayne's separate billing during the credits was controversial because he didn't even participate in World War II, as Christian mentioned. Mm-hmm. Pilgrim. <laughs> <laughs> and then the NAACP accused Fox of racial discrimination. Only one black actor can be seen in the film, although 1,700 black soldiers took part in the landing. So, and, and the fun facts that I read about that, you can like barely see him too. He's in like the tiniest corner of the screen when they're running in. It's like one of the large wide shots. Yeah. Uh, unsurprising, but still disappointing. It's funny that it's Fox. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but yeah. Any final thoughts on D-Day before we move on? Final thoughts on D-Day or the longest uh, day? The, the longest day. Sorry. The it, longest might as, D -Day. it might as well be called D-Day. That's basically what it is. So, All right, Christian, take us away. Okay. Right, well, I wrote a song, but I don't want to say it now because it's bad. <laughs> so, I'll just say the movie. The movie is The Music Man. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. Thank you. I might know the complete overture to that, but whatever. So The Music Man, directed by Morton DaCosta, is based upon the 1957 Broadway musical of the same name, same plot, same director. And it is about uh, Harold Hill. I almost wanted to say Henry. Harold Hill, and he arrives in a small town in Iowa, and he's a con man, pretty much. He comes off the train. Uh, the salesmen on the train have heard of him before. And they're warning each other about him. When he arrives in the small Iowa town, he starts to sort of put himself into the daily lives of these small Iowans, even though they don't really care about him. And then he says, well, guess what I can do? I can take all the boys in the town and I can make this really swell band because your boys need to be in this band or else they'll go to pool halls with their knickerbockers tied up. 
this is all through songs too, y'all. <laughs> uh, and then he meets and sort of becomes friendly with Marion, who is a librarian. <laughs> it rhymes because it's a song. Oh, <laughs> thank you. And yeah, uh, through all of this too, the townspeople are sort of skeptic about him, especially like the officials. They really want his credentials, who he is, where he comes from, what authority does he have. And he sort of comes and he changes their lives, so to say. He brings people who hate each other together. He turns families against families. He makes the children sing and dance and all good times. And yeah. And supposedly there's mountains in Iowa. So. <laughs> That's one of those filming things that pisses me off all the time with like older movies. You see the mountains, clearly it's a studio back lot. And it's like, Iowa, okay. But yeah, that's The Music Man. And it has a bunch of really great songs. Some might say the first rap songs, which is like, they brought up a big point with that in a couple Tony Awards ago, which I was like, okay, that's weird. But yes, what say both of you? Clearly you both had to have been exposed to like the knowledge of The Music Man was a thing. I don't know if I, either of you have seen it before, but what say you? I was. Um, it's actually one of my mom's favorite musicals, so. Uh, I was exposed to not only the movie anytime it showed up on TV, but also uh, several songs as far as the musical aspect. To me, this is pretty much all that the movie is about. It's all basically surrounding those musical acts. Um, you, you mentioned Rock Island from the beginning. And to me, for the time, that was one of the most brilliant uses of using the sound effects of things around you as having the cadence for a song and having all the little special effects. So them saying shh and the steam blowing at the same time, things like that. Um, we'll come back and talk about favorite songs, I'm sure. But um, I, there's something to this movie. It's like, I just wait for the next musical act to happen. and it's like all the banter in between. It's like, I, I remember in fast forwarding that stuff on my old VHS tape. So a couple of interesting uh, standouts, I would say uh, Shirley Jones, uh, Buddy Hackett was Buddy Hackett. Uh, it was nice to see Opie Cunningham, AKA Ron Howard <laughs> as a kid, <laughs> but yeah, for me, it's mostly the music for this one. Um, and also, for their musical acts, they definitely depart from the classic MGM style where they want to do long takes for you to see, you know, dancing and so forth. They, they have more quick cutaways and so forth. So, um, but, you know, most of the acts are good and memorable and so forth. Will I be singing She Poopy? No, but... <laughs> You know, life goes on from there. Yeah. You know, this is a movie I hadn't seen before, but I, I was familiar with it and I was familiar with the plot. I don't really know why, but I, I've always been familiar with it. Um, and I know I've heard the song, y You Got Trouble. I know I've heard that before watching this, um, that one in particular. Again, don't know why. The other, the other song, She Poopy, uh, I... <laughs> I knew that from the Family Guy episode yes. with Peters. <laughs> <laughs> this whole time, I never knew that was from this musical. And when, so when Buddy Hackett starts singing it, I'm like, I'm like the Leonardo DiCaprio meme. I'm like pointing up at the screen. And uh, 
yeah so that was kind of a funny realization there's, there's actually that in the first piano lesson where they're talking like this alongside the piano that's also part of like a family guy thing interesting yep. yeah and then the famous, the famous simpson song monorail is based on you got trouble all right yeah so obviously inspirational like katie said for the music yeah i mean that was a big part for me too is the music and the big set kate the set pieces i love the scene in the library that's just an impressive that's a cool library for yeah the, especially as they go up the spiral yep. sets yeah so cool like really well put together and also just the colors because as i was going through movies for this year there just weren't that many really colorful movies like this and so it was a nice kind of splash of color amidst everything else we were watching um kind of like kb i was kind of waiting for the next musical number it did lull a little bit at times near like middle to end but for the most part just complete joy all the way through to watch it's fun um, I really enjoyed Robert Preston, obviously a role that he was well known for um, on the stage and the film. And you can kind of see why um, through his performance here. So he reminded me of a used car salesman every single time. <laughs> and guess who'll but, be playing? Guess who'll be playing in the Music Man once Broadway reopens? The one, the only Hugh Jackman. That's right. I forgot I about that. I can see it. But Christian, so let's what, hear your thoughts. Like, what what is your experience with this movie? I mean, it's a musical, so I've, <laughs> I've known of it, and I really like it. Yeah, that's it. That's I really crazy. like it. I actually grew up watching the remake, because there's a remake of this with Matthew Broderick, that when ABC used to do Wonderful World of Disney, they really put a lot of money into, like, Broadway shows as movies. So I, like, I watched that first, then this. It's good. It's... I think my favorite aspect is one, you get to see Robert Preston do his most famous role, which you got some of that a lot in the 50s and 60s. You don't get it as much now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you get to actually live seeing him do a role that he's famous for. That's pretty cool. The songs are fun. Um, it's very patriotic because it's a small American town. It's not like this is set in New York City, it's set in Iowa. Mm -hmm. There's a nostalgic feel to it. Yeah, name like 10 movies that are set in Iowa that actually care. Field of right. Dreams, I'm assuming <laughs> Field of Dreams. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, this is like, hey, I love you, Iowa. Small town Iowa. But, right. and Shirley Jones is really great in this. Yeah, small town Iowa has a lot of boys to be in that uh, band as well. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> that, that last surprise at the end where they're marching and I'm like, how many kids they got in this town? They all coming from the countryside of it. Good point. <laughs> mm -hmm. So but, what's uh, what's everyone's favorite song or favorite number? Y'all go first. Trouble for me. <sighs> yeah, it's it's either that or the '76 Trombones, which I feel is like it's kind of the like the most notable. But I really like you got trouble. I just like that just fully introduces that character so well. So I got to agree. Y'all are basic. <laughs> what do you have, like Sincere or something like no. that? No, Light of Rose. Dream uh, of now, uh, dream okay. of then, dream of a lost song that might have been. I'm not surprised because Shirley Jones sings it. So that doesn't surprise me. That's such a good song though. 
that's also a nice little matchup uh, mashup too when they're going between the quartet and her back and forth i was like take that glee <laughs> christian do you want to go over some of our fun facts for this one Yes, this one uh, one Academy Award for Best Score. I'm pretty sure back in the day it was adapted or treated score, so not original, obviously. Um, and then five additional nominations, picture, art direction for color, costume design for color, which I really like both of those, sound and film editing. This is the number five domestic box office film of the year. Um, sort of looking at like the rest of the movies that we have, it's sort of the family friendly one, so I can see that. Many members of the original Broadway cast appear. Bing Crosby and Cary Grant, um, and also believe Frank Sinatra, were all uh, offered the role. Uh, Cary Grant turned it down because he think nobody could do it as well as Robert Preston. And then he was, Cary Grant was offered the next, or two years later, uh, my, the My Fair Lady role, not of the lady, but <laughs> of Rex Harrison. And he said basically the same thing. So Cary Grant, we never got to see him in a musical. Or did we? I'm not sure. And then something of a rare instance, and this is sort of my opinion slash a fun fact I read, that because they wanted a more bankable star, which is why they got Shirley Jones in this and not Barbara Cook, who was Marion in the Broadway cast, um, many audiences and critics had no complaints because Shirley Jones was actually very good and held her own against Robert Preston. Yeah. Agreed. And she's also coming off like an Oscar win. So, you know, she got it. Do you know the name of that uh, barbershop quartet? They're the Buffalo Bills. Just like the football team, who was not the Buffalo Bills at the time. They were the Buffalo Bisons, and it shortly changed their name after it, so right around this time. I did not know that. Yep. Interesting. Or is, it, or is it based on a murderer who skins his victim? <laughs> Could be. No. Awesome. I'm always happy when Brett sees a musical, so I don't know. He doesn't seem like the type to want to watch them. <laughs> I really do enjoy him a lot, though, like especially the 50s and 60s, colorful, especially the MGM musicals. They're just a lot of fun and really enjoyable. And this, this one falls into that, too. So, but yeah. Any final thoughts on The Music Man before we move on? It's delightful and should be watched, and yeah. especially on the fourth. I, I definitely think it's just because of the gravity of the other movies of the time led to its success. That and Gypsy. There you go. I would also like to say that this beat West Side Story at the Tony Awards, so think about that. Ooh. Yes. Interesting. Ooh. Yeah. I, I don't see it. Wow. That was the 50s. People weren't accustomed to gangs. Uh, makes sense. <laughs> All right. Well, our next film is no <laughs> that gives you any clue to how we probably felt about it. Um, it is a remake. It is Mutiny on the Bounty. Um, and so this is the story of what's his name? Fletcher Christian. Fletcher Christian. Why yes. do I know that off the top of my head? I, <laughs> I had to look it up still. No, no, Fletcher. Yeah, it's Fletcher Christian. He is like the first mate on a cargo ship um, that's bound for Tahiti to get um, these plants that are going to, well, that they are going to send to Africa and other places to see if it serves as a food source for slaves in those countries. And then basically use that as a test example. Yeah, this movie screwed up. Um, 
But the captain, Captain Bly, is leading this whole thing, and he's very brutal and cruel to the shipmates. He basically takes them right into an oncoming storm to try to get to places on time. And basically, the whole trip is mostly a disaster, um, largely because Captain Bly is not loyal to his shipmates. He turns on them and treats them pretty harshly when he feels the need to, including like a really brutal whipping scene um, fairly early in the movie. So really long film, about three hours. And I checked the mutiny finally happens at two hours and 13 minutes into the movie. So this title mutiny, you got to wait over two hours to finally get to it. But they do eventually throw overthrow Captain Bly. Fletcher Christian takes over and it basically goes from there. I, I think it's definitely the worst of these nominees. I didn't hate the movie, but to me, it started off pretty good. I mean, I was kind of interested when they were taking off and I thought the cinematography was good. I thought the set design of the ship was really good and the score was really good. But at about 45 minutes in, it really just starts slowing down and really drags from that point forward and features possibly Marlon Brando's worst performance. Um, and a lot of critics at the time agreed. So that accent, that accent. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thoughts. I will say that there was a line where they said they were in Tahiti for five months and it felt like five minutes. For me, it felt like five hours <laughs> because I think that's where it really slowed down. And if any re-editing could be done, it would be to cut down a lot of that and a lot of the third act. Um, I, I think Christian said this, the previous edition is definitely the better one. It's the Oscar winning one. Um, for me, it was just a matter of watching it to watch it. Brando just going in and out of the accent was just a comical at times. <laughs> and honestly, the, the best actor in it was the gentleman who played uh, Captain Bly, Trevor Captain Howard. Howard. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tahiti is what did it in for me. What about you? Agree. So, like, the most that I know I knew about this movie was that Marlon Brando fell in love with Tahiti after this, and he married, mm -hmm. a, he married one of his co-star women. Yeah, but for some reason I own this. I don't remember why I bought it, but I bought it years ago during like a Brando phase I had. Um, stick to the original 1935 because that one is amazing. Yep. This one is the, and like we had the audience of these people. This is the Donald Trump version, okay? And I say that because this movie, and I'm collectively this movie and the remake of this movie and the original one were trending a while ago because he hadn't mentioned them. So what do you know? Um, but no, very long movie. It feels its length. Like Lawrence of Arabia, which we'll talk about, was much longer. But which one felt it? This, oh, this one. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, Brando is terribly miscast in this. I'm pretty sure this is like a thing for him being a, what do you, like a passion project. I feel it was one of those things, but no, he's awful in it. It's nice to look at, which I say when that's all I want to say about a movie. <laughs> 
Again, and I think we mentioned this when we talk about movies set in Africa, like um, King Solomon's Mines or Out of Africa. It's places the American audiences have never seen before. Ooh, how pretty, how festive. We love it. Yeah. So Oscar voters eat it up, of course. Yeah. So, yeah. So. The exotic, as they used to call it. Yeah. It, yep. Oh, God. That's, it, it's cringy. <laughs> Very cringeworthy. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I know a lot of, I'm not going to say a lot of the reason. I think this film is just pretty, not very good, but a lot of just off screen drama with Brando and they switched directors from Carol Reed to Lewis Milestone halfway through. So that doesn't help. Um, and yeah, I, I agree completely with what you said, KB, like cut down on the Tahiti stuff. Cause that's where it just drags and gets slow. But you, you got to give, uh, Warner their credit for knowing that the only way they could like cast this uh, remake is by getting a big name of the day um, before we went on I said that uh, Brando was actually considered for the lead part in Lawrence of Arabia and turned it down to do this and I, I want to say yay for Lawrence of Arabia but at the same time it's like eh. <laughs> But just think about it, without him, this movie probably isn't as big as it was. I mean, what was it mm -hmm. as far as the ranking for the year? Like Number six. Number six. So it doesn't come that high unless people are going to see Brando. Because even though he was in his late 30s, he was still, you know, uh, a ticket grabber. Right. And it, it needed to do that. Because, I mean, even being number six of the year, it was still a box office bomb. So... Imagine if Brando wasn't in there, well, he, they probably would have paid less, but still, like, if they don't get that many receipts, how bad of a bomb is it beyond that? In terms of, in terms of a remake, too, you have to remember he's stepping into the foot or into the, the shoes of Clark Gable, who, True. who is the king of Hollywood during the heyday of, you know, his reign there. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so weird. Like, when I was ready to watch this i was getting ready to say that brando would be the redeeming quality of the movie oh. and that's not the case like it's no yeah so that was disappointing for sure but this was it didn't have any wins um at the oscars okay. <laughs> so that's a good sign i guess really yeah seven noms though best picture cinematography for a color film um color art direction film editing, special effects, original song, which was called a love song from Mutiny by the on the Bounty, Follow Me, and best original score, which was really good. I will say yeah. I really like the score. Where is the song in this movie unless I blanked? I have no idea. Could not tell the you. Only, the only time I could think about it was um, Mahiti was her name when they first had their, you know, interlude or whatever. Interesting. I would have to go back and watch it and yeah <laughs> don't do that can you picture someone else starting in this like a Spencer Tracy let's say I I don't know I feel like anybody I don't know like I said Marlon Brando's miscast in this but it's probably his thing they should have got a British actor mm -hmm. what if they did what if they moved Richard Harris from his role into the Fletcher Christian role? 
that probably would have worked better. I could see that. Yeah. That'd been good. And like but. Richard Harris hated Brando on this too. Yeah. And obviously he's nowhere near as big as someone like Brando or Spencer Tracy. So, but I could see it. Um, there's a first movie filmed in Ultra Panavision 70 widescreen process. Um, and it basically destroyed Brando's career for 10 years until he came back with The Godfather um, and Last Tango in Paris in those same years. So not a good, not a good film for Brando. Uh, he was constantly stopping production for the film because of his shenanigans that didn't bode well with anybody on set. Trevor Howard and Richard Harris clashed with him often, as Christian, you mentioned. So you like how I put Brando big sigh. <laughs> like a commonality thing with him too because once you get into apocalypse now oy vey oh, yeah. that one that'll be a fun one to talk about too but yeah that's mutiny on the bounty any further thoughts stick with the original yep all right wait which is weird because brett you've never seen the original have i've you? never seen the original god you had to start you with make. yeah you know when we get there I, I as long as it's better than this one so <laughs> all right christian you take us away with our next one all right our next one is based on the best-selling novel that every american should read period it is to kill a mockingbird directed by robert mulligan again based on the same novel by harper lee it tells the story of um the finch family scout and jim who are the children and their father atticus they come of age in the depression era uh, alabama their father who is played by gregory peck amazing performance if i must say so myself uh is on he's a lawyer and he is defending a black man during a rape trial that is sort of changing the perception of these children and the whole town. I don't want to spoil what happens because again, you all should read this book if you're an American because it's very important. But is at the heart of it, I think it is a coming of age story and sort of this loss of innocence of these two kids alongside their friend um, because they learn really the basics of being a human being and judging others and maybe, you know, don't judge before you meet a person because you never know what they could do to you. And I say that in a good way because the ending is, yeah. Um, but no, Mary Badham I'm, is um, Scout and she was nominated for this and she's incredible as a child actress and it's from her perspective. And yeah, very, I'm saying like the very basic structure of this because I think that this is one of the most widely read books in school. But people should just get a basic understanding of it and watch the film because the film is equally as impressive as the book yes. and harper lee agrees so herself or herself yeah but no amazing amazing film i think we all can agree with that go ahead yeah um this is the second time i've watched it i first watched it probably four years ago and then read the book like immediately after and i, I think that's why it works it's just so well adapted mm -hmm. i mean it's i can't I, Christian, you've obviously read it more recently than I have, but I can't remember that many differences between the book and the movie, um, at least major differences. That we I think the, the only major difference, major, there's minor, but major is that there is an ant character who stays with them. Right. That's right. it. That's like, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's just, 
it's a classic story. It's just, it's classic in every sense of the word. It's held up for me since the last time I watched it. It's just, it's, it's enjoyable for every minute in the movie. And there is that, I really like how typically when you have a coming of age movie with that loss of innocence, it's often so kind of sad in a way um, in the end. And this one, I mean, it's, it, it's sad that these kids have to experience this, but it's also just so necessary. And it's, there's, there's some joy in it that they're learning from it. Um, and that Atticus Finch is trying to teach them the right way. And that's such a big part of this movie. And Gregory Peck is, it's just one of the most memorable performances imaginable um, because he's so subdued and we don't really get close to his character, but it's, it's such a monumental role. Um, and he really does kind of encapsulate a hero in the sense. And so and I think, you know, obviously there's, there are some things that would probably, you know, be different if it was made today, but for a film made in 1962, I think it's pretty progressive um, in a lot of ways. And so I love it. I think it's great. Pretty much everything that you've both said so far, um, growing up reading the book uh, several times and then being exposed to the movie, probably, I want to say like when I was 15, 16, and just seeing it over and over, you know, TCM and so forth. It's definitely one that I know I, I had to show my family and then I tried to show it to them again for the first time. It was like, we've seen this. And then I was like, oh, great. They're just going to leave. And they all sat there and watched it again with me. Um, some of the characters have gone on to just be like icons in both the literary and movie worlds. So it's it's just great. It was probably one of my favorite movies of that year as well. Yeah, absolutely. I the performances like Gregory Peck is great, Mary Badham is great, Brock Peters as Tom Robinson, the man who's on trial, his testimony scene is flat out phenomenal. Like that's one of those scenes where if he had won an Oscar for it, it'd be almost like Hannah Anne Hathaway and Lay Miz, like that one scene would win an Oscar. Um and he should have been nominated, but alas, he was not. So that's always one of my fears is um, because this is, like I said, one of the most widely read in schools, that it's not appreciated enough anymore. And I think because of that whole forced reading thing, because I know when we read it, I think it was in eighth grade, that I was probably the only one to really, really appreciate it because I had seen the movie and I knew what was happening. And so like the book was totally different because I was still sort of comparing movie to book and then reading the book, which I literally just finished the book maybe a week and a half ago again, which is the first time since eighth grade. So 2008, it's totally, I mean, it's amazing how different, but how much the same they are and how important reading that book is. I mean, you just get like the whole race issue. Cause this, I mean, there's a lot of race subjects with this. It takes place in Alabama. Tom Robinson is a black man who's being defended by this white guy. In the 1930s. In the 1930s. Um, yeah. And the whole, it's a rape case against him versus this white girl. So obviously it's a big topic in there, but yeah. Yeah. And I just, this time I, I really tried to kind of, think about some of the just symbolism and kind of almost mythic status of Atticus Finch 
And I mm. really was kind of struck by the scene where he shoots the rabid dog, um, which for anybody who hasn't seen, there, there's this dog like walking the streets and these people are like, oh my gosh, we got to put it down before it makes its way into the town. And Atticus doesn't want to do it, but they're like, you know how bad my shot is, blah, blah. And he does it and the kids watch and they're just like amazed because this is like something they've never seen before from their dad to take that type of stance and that authority and you he's, know, always, we he's always so calm always so calm and like we never i'm pretty sure we never see atticus without one of the children present um because it is from their point of view you know the the book is from scout's point of view and so it just kind of goes further into that kind of mythic status of atticus finch as a character mm. i also appreciate the use of voiceover um, not that prominent in the time, but it definitely tied the the book to the movie in a sense because, uh, as you mentioned, it's told from the perspective of the children, and you have this adult narrator kind of tying everything together. So that really worked as well. It's one of the few um, adaptations from a book that just matches up to the book itself. Absolutely. Christian, do you want to read some of our facts here? Indeed. Uh, so three wins for Ger yeah, Ger for Gregory Peck for best actor. He thought he wasn't going to win. I mean, okay, Greg. <laughs> Adapted screenplay for Horton Foote, who didn't show up. He would win again in the 80s. And this time he said, I'm going to show up just in case. And sure enough, he won. Uh, an art direction, black and white. Five additional nominations, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress, Mary Badham, Director for Robert Mulligan, Cinematography, Black and White, and Original Score, which I really dig the score in this one too. Yeah. Yeah. And it was number seven at the box office of that year, which is whatever, because Mutiny on the Bounty was number six. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, based upon the novel by Harper Lee, which is written in 19, or published in 1960, and so this is only a two-year difference. I mean, you can tell the success of that one. Original plan was to film in Lee's ho hometown of Monroeville, Alabama, but it had changed too much over the years. So Hollywood backlot was used. Uh, Gregory Peck's summation, which runs for six and a half minutes, was done in a single take because that is acting. Mm, and Walt Disney, oh, go ahead. No, I just said definitely yeah. powerful scene. Yeah. And Walt Disney was reported as saying this was the type of film he'd want to make after being a creative stupor for some years. And then he made Mary Poppins and he was fulfilled. This is the AFI's number 25 best film of their 100 years, 100 movies of 07. That thing needs to be updated. I'm sure this would be much, much lower these days. Atticus Finch is the AFI's number one greatest movie hero. Um, and just consider, like, there's a lot of mythical heroes on that. And this is just one man who's a lawyer. Mm -hmm. yeah, he's, a, yeah. he's, a, he's an everyman, pretty much. Uh, number 17 on AFI's top 25 film scores, which is interesting. Huh, didn't know that. Number two on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers, which I think I remember seeing that and being very surprised. Yeah. And number one of AFI's top 10 courtroom dramas. Yeah. Pretty good showing. Yeah. Definitely a movie of its time that has lasted, I will say. 
this definitely wins if not for Lawrence of Arabia, right? Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. I figured. But yeah. Any other thoughts on this before we move on to our best picture winner? Like you said, it holds up. Yeah. It holds up to today. It does. Well, I kind of spoiled it a little bit, but our best picture winner of nineteen sixty two was Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> And so this is um, definitely an epic film. I think it's probably the definition of an epic. Um, it stars Peter O'Toole as T.E. Lawrence and basically shows him um, beginning as kind of a, a someone in the British military who is not taken very seriously. Uh, but then he goes and leads um, Arab tribes against to fight the Turks in World War I. And so he kind of stumbles into this role. Um, he gets to know Prince Faisal, um, who is played by Alec Guinness. <clears throat> Some problematic casting there. Um, yes. <laughs> but he does. He, he leads um, these Arab tribes and to fight the Turks throughout the movie. And, I mean, that's basically what it is. It's, you know, leading them across the deserts, um, his his partnership with Omar Sharif's character, Sharif Ali, um, who is really, really good in the movie. And a lot of it is really, the way I took it, was trying to get to the point of who T.E. Lawrence was, um, at least the way that the movie is presenting him. It actually begins with his funeral years later on, and a lot of people going around and talking about who he is and them having different opinions about him but it kind of presents him as a really legendary figure who did some pretty amazing things during wartime. Whether that's accurate, uh, yeah, it's kind of up for debate. So, but yeah, definitely a classic and epic in the sense of the word. Really, really beautiful film. Some of the greatest cinematography um, for sure. Four hours long. Yes, it, it, yes. it is a very long movie. Very long movie to sit through. Uh, but definitely feels shorter than Mutiny on the Bounty. And I think it feels shorter than The Longest Day, too. And so, what are your thoughts? Good movie. Surprisingly, not in, like, because I've seen every Best Picture winner, but it, I don't think this is in my top 20, which a lot of people it is. But for me, it's it's good. It's not great. Peter O'Toole's great in it. Um, it's sort of unfortunate that he never won an Oscar. I'm sure his other nomination for like the lion in winter probably would have sealed it for him this would have if it wasn't probably for gregory peck i also will say jack lemon talk about that later uh omar sharif definitely should have won hands down yeah mm -hmm. yeah um like i said earlier a lot of sand <laughs> lots of sand but also uh in the same vein as uh atticus finch Lawrence is sort of this every man who turns into a mythical hero. And that scene in the scene where he goes back to find the guy who fell off the camel. And once he comes back with him, they present him with the robes. That part always gets to me. That's like the best part. That and then the journey across the desert to get back to Egypt. And it's just like him and the other guy because uh, the quicksand got one of his companions and they see the boat and the now it's like hey yeah kb uh as i mentioned before this is like one of those epic movies where it's like 
normally epic movies have some type of plot line that you go through and as far as the plot this is probably the worst thing about the movie so it's like you have this great movie and then the the plot is just like the the last thing that you'd want to talk about i want to talk about the cinematography i want to talk about the score i want to talk about the acting performances especially omar sharif and then you're like but the story itself mm. so as i mentioned um before we started recording originally i had this like two and a half stars because every time i saw it it was just a technical aspect of the movie that i said it's excellent it's great it's memorable it's iconic but the story itself is like okay so it's like a story of a man that nobody knew okay we could have done that in less than four hours <laughs> yeah <laughs> but when you take a look at it from the standpoint like you mentioned in the funeral scene where no one can really pinpoint themselves as having a a hold on who T.E. Lawrence was that really is the defining uh aspect of the movie is that nobody knew so we're going to take you every which way till Sunday and at the end you really don't feel like you know this man because at one point he's very boastful and um almost like egotistic and then another point he's just like no i'm nobody treat mm -hmm. me as nobody i want to go home <laughs> so it, it's just like all these different things and in a it's a beautiful case of misdirection a lot of times too yeah i mean that's that's kind of what sealed it for me i really struggled with how much i like wanted to praise and rate this movie because i was i was certain it was gonna be at least like a four and a half star movie because it just kind of blew me away and that whole aspect of who is te lawrence was really interesting to me and like you said his progression of he he wants his name to be known he wants to be in the midst of all this and then once he sees the horrific nature of it he's like this sucks like this you know the ending for him is not a happy ending whatsoever um despite his newfound fame and so I really enjoy that aspect. But for me, it's just like I, I struggle not thinking of the thought of like, how did they do this? Like, how did they make this movie? And almost like a masterpiece in that sense. And so I do hold it in really high regard, but it's not, it's not going to be on a favorites list of mine. You know, it's not going to be one of my favorites of all time. It's a spoiler. It's not even my favorite from these nominees. Um, but I do hold it in really high regard for what they were able to do and what Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif do in their roles and the story that they do tell, um, even though it does take a long time to get through it, for sure. I would like to know how many cameras they lost oh. in the shooting of this. All the because sand. <laughs> all the sand. And for all the sand that we, we get, the payoff is we get these beautiful wide beautiful wide wide shots that mm -hmm. it's almost like immersive because you can see someone coming from a long ways and it looks a long ways there's definitely no studio set here that whole, <laughs> intro, that whole intro of omar sharif's character 
Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's like he's coming and he's coming and he's still coming. <laughs> <laughs> Hour later. I, yeah. I guess maybe that's a benefit of the long running time is that you really do feel the passing of these time the passing of time that these characters must be filling in this movie when they're traveling across this long desert. Um, it's not, obviously we don't feel it the same way we do, but we do feel it. You know, that feeling is had. So. Yeah. That's why I say immersive because even with the heat, there are scenes where they're, they're like using their clothes as tents to protect them from the heat. And it's like, you feel that. Yeah. It makes you feel like you're there with the sand, with the heat. And you, you gave away the quicksand scene. It's like, oh, no, you feel like he's not going to make it as soon as you see him in that quicksand. Because there's no quicksand experts out there. They don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, definitely a, a little more violent than I expect. I mean, I know it's a war movie, but like sometimes just brutal with some of the things he has to do and... Um, having to kill people he does not want to kill so that they're not captured and things like that and kind of interesting and surprising in that aspect too i want to go to back to kb's point where he said something akin to at the end of this we don't really know who lawrence is like a lot of the people at the funeral do and it's weird to think that this is such like a four hour movie that the scenes that i talked about Plus the train scene. There's a train scene, right? <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. I am, of, am I thinking of Reds? You might be thinking of Reds. I, I don't know. See? I might just be forgetting it. See, the fact that the scenes that I've already spoken about are really the major scenes that I can remember alongside the match cut scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about here. Yep. But in those four hours, I cannot believe that the most I can remember is more imagery than plot. It's like the man. Yeah. You, yeah. you remember him as the near deity that they treated him as, but did you really know the man? I would say out of everyone, it would be the uh, Sharif character that knew him the most. And even then, he'd probably say he didn't really know. And like, I will say that it, again, with the four hour runtime, I'm going back to Gone with the Wind where I can tell you everything that happens in that movie. And I can tell you by the end of it, who Scarlett O'Hara is. Mm. Yeah, but there's right. more happening in that compared to this. And this, it's like the central focus. He goes to Arabia, he's helping the Arabs defeat the Turks. In Gone with the Wind, it's Scarlett. She's doing this, 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 this happens. Then she has to do this, 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 and this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why and, I say it's like, um without like a solid plot because like there's no development of things in a linear format or any other way and the fact that it's all told in a flashback it's like we still don't know it yeah and i mean you you talk about how influential this film is nobody's talking about how influential it is because of the story you know everybody's talking about its influence because of the images like you said christian so the match cut just great like great editing too i mean for as long as this movie is i think the editing is still really really good so do you feel like there's a need to like a movie because it's iconic (sighs) 
like personally, I can't stand Gone with the Wind, and that's because to me it never matched up to the novel and you know races. But <laughs> <laughs> besides that, I, I think a lot of people are afraid to like give an iconic movie or something that everybody loves like a bad rating or to disagree with it because it's like you know like if you hear someone say i hate star wars yeah polarizing but if you know somebody who's like a cinephile say you know i don't like citizen kane you look at them sideways so the question remains are we afraid to dislike a film just because it's like so famous and so iconic I think that does show up sometimes too. And I think, I don't know. Like sometimes I, I kind of get around it by looking at like how much it is regarded. Like, like for example, Citizen Kane, I like Citizen Kane, but do I think it's the greatest movie of all time? Like, I don't even think it's top 25 even. So like cases where like, yes, I still like it, but not to the degree at which it's upheld. I see that a lot, but I, I, I do think so. Like, I think sometimes we, we go in knowing that this is so well acclaimed and it has been for many years and there is probably some fear to criticize it and dislike it or say that we dislike it, even if we do. Yeah, I mean, I'm not afraid to say I like this and I don't love it. And I would probably not see it for the longest time now. And the only reason I watch it is because of this again. First time I watched it was when Peter O'Toole died. Second time was I got the Blu-ray and I wanted to see what it looked like on a big TV. And this is my third time and only because I was forced to. Yeah. And I was looking actually at my ratings because again, I've seen all the best picture winners and it fluctuates, it varies. But out of 93, this is number 48 for me. And I want it's, to see it, that list. It's yeah. outstanding, but it sits between, and these might be the most shocking things. And this shows you my taste. Lawrence of Arabia sits between at number 47, Dances with Wolves, and number 49, The Godfather Part 2. Oh. <laughs> Amy is giving me the face. <laughs> number <Yeah>. 40, what? <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia, 48, Godfather Part 2, 49. Ooh. Ooh. We need to move some furniture and have some <laughs> 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 It showed, you, it showed you my taste. I don't know. But okay. I also, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so Lean followed us up with Dr. Shibago, right? Yeah. Between the two, which is higher. For me? Yeah. I, I, would, I, could, I could easily watch this more than I can easily watch Shivago. Shivago is very hard for me to follow. Same. Same. But, I've watched it three times in my life, but it might have to go a fourth time just to. I like from what I've seen of Lean, and it's I've seen like Brief Encounter, which is very, it's not an epic at all. Mm -hmm. um, but his epic films, I could see The Bridge on the River Kwai over and over again. This I'm done with. Zhivago, I'm fine with. And. 70s, I haven't seen Ryan's Daughter. Sorry, I'm doing all of David Lean's bio. Oh. He's got it memorized right. there. Um, and then A Passage to India, which was his last, that is, a, uh, we already had the expletive on the iTunes. It's a fucking amazing film. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we get to 84, A Passage to India is where it's at. 
But yeah, I, I think I want in on that one because <laughs> I could talk about that movie too. See, so I mean, I don't know. It's something. Lawrence Arabia is fine in David Lean's world. His direction on it is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I gotta say that it's phenomenal. He's very influenced by John Ford in The Searchers, which we talked mm-hmm. about a couple podcasts ago. Uh, d- definitely with the wide shots, the whole landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, slow, yeah. slow fades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. That's a good question, though. I just think there are some people who just like love disliking highly acclaimed movies. And, oh, yeah. You know, so it's, it, it's different for each person for sure. But yeah, I, I think there is a little pressure sometimes for sure. But read us the facts. Yeah. So Lawrence of Arabia did win seven Oscars, by far the biggest winner of that night. Um, Best picture, director for David Lean, color cinematography, color art direction, sound, film editing, and score. Amazing score. Mm. Um, It also nominated for three additional Oscars Best Actor for Peter O'Toole, Best Supporting Actor for Omar Sharif, should have won, and Best Adapted Screenplay. One thing it was not nominated for because they forgot to submit it. Costumes. Oh, wow. Good point. Wow. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's what I read. They forgot to submit it. Oh, I would hate to be that person that forgot to do that. Um, it was the number one domestic box office film of the year. So very popular as well as critically acclaimed. Could you imagine sitting through this in like 62? And people did it uh, multiple times i heard it was like an event in those uncomfortable seats oh no thanks <laughs> uh but steven spielberg considers it his favorite film of all time and a major influence on his work um it was banned in jordan for its portrayal of arab culture interesting only best picture winner to have no female speaking roles and reportedly the longest um the most so the famous match cut was just going to be a dissolve but editor and v coach suggested to david lean that he use the cut as it was in fashion in the current french new wave just watch some french new wave film they are great christian let's hear about this golden girls reference all right had to be done <laughs> i told this to zay and they told me of course to mention it so uh, in the Golden Girls, they get an, uh, an ad in the mail for a new dirty dancing class. And Blanche asked Dorothy, have you ever heard of it? And Dorothy said, of course, Blanche, they did it in that movie. Rose says, which movie? Dorothy, Lawrence of Arabia, Rose. Cue audience <laughs> laughter. Of course. There's the one Golden Girls reference of the podcast episode. That's That's been our new, like, have to include it at least once thing. I like, I like. Uh, for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, 2007, it is number seven. It was actually higher on their previous list. I want to say like number four, number five. And we're still sort of figuring out how that list is created because half the time they're like American movies only, but this is like British. Yep. Yeah, that's that's really odd. Number one on AFI's top 10 epic films and I will say, even before seeing this, this is like what first came to mind when people said epic. Mm-hmm. And so I could see that. Number three on AFI's top 25 film scores of all time. Um, T.E. Lawrence was their number 10 movie hero. It's number three on their 100 thrills, number 30 on their 100 cheers, 
And the British Film Institute named it their third greatest British film of all time. And it was named the best British film of all time by Sunday Telegraph's poll of leading filmmakers of the time. And so very highly acclaimed in a number of ways. Um, and, I, you know, we're checking out at least for historical film related purposes. So, all right. Any other thoughts before we move on to our rankings? Good, not great. Good, not great. I was waiting for the dirty dancing scene. <laughs> <laughs> All right. in the desert. <laughs> well, we're going to rank these nominees to see if we can decide whether the Oscars got it right. So, KB, I'll go to you first, starting at number five. Let's hear your rankings. At number five, Mutiny on the Bounty. Um, I think we pretty much decided why. At number four, Music Man, not to say it was bad, just the nostalgia was there, but just for the music. The Longest Day at three, um, it was long, <laughs> but um, can't look past the cast and uh, all the other technical aspects, especially the one that won them awards. Two, Lawrence of Arabia for everything we just said, and the reason why it's not number one is for that missing plot and just because to kill a mockingbird is just it was perfect it was my favorite movie of the year as i mentioned so yeah that's mine all right christian what do you got at number five i got mutiny on the mutiny on the bounty i could care less about it at number four the longest day it was long it was a day at number three, The Music Man, because my musical bias, as I told you all before. Number two, Lawrence of Arabia. And number one, one of the most important films, To Kill a Mockingbird. Should have won. All right, number five, I also have Mutiny on the Bounty. Number four, again, not you know good movie, um, but The Music Man. Number three, The Longest Day. Number two, Lawrence of Arabia, and number one, once again, To Kill a Mockingbird. And so we agree, if we would have been voters at the 1962 Oscars, our best picture would have been, for sure, To Kill a Mockingbird. If we were voters, um, a certain studio head might have greased our pockets. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Got to consider that, too. And I believe Zay on our previous episodes has been doing this lately. But I mean, it's very easy to see that Lawrence of Arabia comes in a clear second. Oh, yeah. If you do the whole like point system that they do these days. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a, it's a weird thing where it's I'm fine with it winning. I would have rather had to kill a mockingbird, but I can see why it won. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is one where I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say the Academy got it wrong per se. I would just say that that's not what I would personally vote for, I guess. Yeah. Like, which one has that? I mean, sure, they both made a very cultural impact. I think To Kill a Mockingbird has more of, like, a very cultural, social impact. Definitely. I mean, one of them didn't even have a female speaking part, so. <laughs> and there's that, too. So. All right. Well, we've covered the five nominees from this year. And so, as always, be sure to tune into our next episode because we have six more 
really good films to talk about. Um, 1962 was a really, really great year for movies. And so we've got some more to talk about. We'll do our top tens from the year and our personal winners and nominees. So be sure to look out for that. And as always, um, rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Like us on all the social media out there, Letterboxd, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, and check out gildafilms.com. That's where we'll also post all these episodes. And so, KB, thanks for joining us again. Any final thoughts from you? It's good to be back on the podcast. Um, looking forward to talking more about 1962. All right. Christian, how about you? Um, that's about it. I will say that I can't wait to talk about the other movies and the six we got plus others because this for me was a great year for performances. Mm. Yep. Yes, I had a lot of performances I want to talk about. Agreed. Well, be sure to look out for that and we'll talk to you then.